I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This week, we hear from the fabulous musician turned award-winning author, Daniel Rachel. The man behind the wonderful oral history books, Don't Look Back in Anger and Wars Come Tumbling Down. We kick off with the UK in the 90s and a who's who of the decade, with this Awella right in the middle. Then head back to the 80s for Red Wedge. We talk songwriting, a love of music with so many amazing stories and so much more. So let's get into it. Daniel, thanks for joining me. Hi, Dan. The most recent book of yours is banging to the time period when I first discovered the music of Paul Weller and really discovered myself in a way as well. So my my radio career started, I properly got into music. So this kind of time period that you talk about so much, all all these guests of yours, I guess, talk about so much is exactly when I was into all that stuff. So it was a really lovely experience, but we'll talk about that in a sec. As this is the Paul Weller fan podcast, I'd love to know when you first discovered the music of Paul Weller. (laughs) Well, it's definitely the jam. And, oh, I don't know if there's a pivotal moment for first hearing a jam. I think it was probably a disco of some (laughs) sort or other, because I remember a kid called Dean Myers who used to have a really cool pair of black shoes and a long green parka. There was some kind of disco, and he danced to, I think it was, Either Tan Called Malice. I think it was Tan Called Malice, so that suggests it was later. So that can't be right. But he danced, and he was so cool. Uh, and I just wanted to be and dance like him, but I, I couldn't dance. And the only time I've ever gotten a dance floor would be if the dry ice 
<laughs> filled it. And then, uh, and then you kind of had about, you know, about 30 or 40 seconds where you knew you could you could do what you want and nobody could quite work it out. So I'd use steal those moments. Plus the fact I was a rude boy and there was a clear delineation at our school between Rudy's and Mods. And I secretly liked the jam. I thought, yeah, but you can't admit that. So I'd use those 30, 40 sections in the dry ice to try out my Dean Myers uh, mod moves and then keep keep it very quiet that I was that, I, that the jam actually existed quite well alongside the specials and madness. I love that. I love that. And and you were clearly into music because so much of your writing is about music. Was that was that something from that time period as well? Were you discovering bands and, and loving music in that way too? Or was it just a bit of a hobby and you know like the rest of us you're just watching Top of the Pops? But it feels like a big passion of yours. Life and music to me are I I, I, I totally entwined. I can't imagine anything other than that. Even when I started, I was watching recently some of those reruns of Top of the Pops, you know, the story of 1975, the story of 1976. And there's so many tracks that I didn't even think I had in my mind conscience, you know, being a five or six-year-old. And then suddenly it plays and it triggers something. And so from the earliest memories of probably being in back of cars and parents playing Radio 1, but the key moment for me was getting hold of a reel-to-reel, a grunding reel-to-reel that my dad had taped uh, songs off. And he had taped from Radio 1 in 1970 the story of the Beatles and, as, and I remember getting this as about a, an eight-year-old, and it had hours and hours and hours of the, of the Beatles being wacky and talking in their great accents and being funny, intercut with tons of their music. And I was obsessed with that. I just wow. endlessly yeah. play it, thinking, these people are brilliant. They become like your friends, the Beatles. And you, you, know, you take your favourites and you, and you feel like that you're in the middle of the, the four of them telling jokes to one another. So that was that was really... Really, really key. And then a really big moment, I mean, this is going off Paul a little bit, was uh, somebody came in with the lyrics of Too Much Too Young at school and we sang them down the front and I was 11 at that point. So even singing and, yeah, records were so, so important and music is important. I'm, I've never, ever been without music in my life. Let's talk about your latest book, Don't Look Back in Anger, which is the, the rise and fall of Cool Britannia told by those who were there. And it's this lovely idea of, um, I think it's described as an oral narrative, which I haven't seen before, um, but I, I love the idea of, of, of hearing from the voices of the time. And I think there's something like 70 odd people talking. People like Noel Gallagher, Damon from Blur, um, Foxy Fowler, Simon Fowler, I know is a really good mate of yours. I think he was, wasn't he your flatmate at one point? Was that right? Promotion colour scene. <laughs> Foxy Fowler. That's really funny. I've never called him Foxy in my life. I no, thought that's what everyone called him. <laughs> no. I can always work out how people know Simon by whether how they call, what they call him. I've known Simon's known me about me since I was really small, and I knew about him, and then we became friends uh, in October 1985 when I was 16. He lived three doors away from me, and uh, and then we were inseparable for for the next 10 or 15 years so um yeah he's my best friend i love him deeply and oddly enough but i already knew steve before then because steve craddock was my friend at junior school and then damon talking about ocean color scene was my friend at school so there's all these kind of odd connections that lead to paul but foxy is is simon's dad oh right okay yeah Yeah, because he always had his nose in other people's business (laughs) he's a copper 
He knew everything. It was a kindly thing, and he embraced the name. I, I think Steve probably started calling Simon Foxes a joke because he found out that his dad was Foxy, and then he kind of caught on with the kind of the Weller fellas, and then yeah. and then Simon wrote Foxy Foxy Face Folk. That, I mean, that song. Foxy's Folk Face. That song's like, that was another song. (laughs) So, I mean, I recorded that in the year that I met Simon when when I was 16. Uh, And I remember putting it on a tape and called it I, which is a rubbish title. (laughs) But it's, what a song. Yeah. yeah, I think everybody's after me. Oh, God. That used to destroy me when I first. We'd just play songs to each other all the time, and I'd always be, play that once. Brilliant. Talking of Ocean Colour Scene, so my first live experience of Weller was, would have been around 92. Paul Art yeah. Centre in Dorset. We lived in Somerset. We had to travel there. And Ocean Colour Scene were supportive. It was first album, so it was the baggy period, if you like, um, before Riverboat Song. And we'll get into Riverboat Song in a sec as well. But that was part of my discovery of Weller was Ocean Colour Scene from the very beginning, too. And then obviously, the band Craddock's still playing with Weller and Damon become part of Weller's band as well so it's lovely how it's all linked back to the book yeah, Simon's in there you've also got uh, Rick Baxill who's been on the podcast and um, an old mate of mine who, who obviously ran Top of the Pops which we'll talk about the Weller connection on that too but and Alan McGee who uh, I mean, has been on the podcast very recently as well but basically all these people from um, the 90s and a little bit of the 2000s the noughties talking about essentially Core Britannia this phrase that some people love some people hate but the fact that at this moment in time we had the best bands, the best artists, the best fashion designers and everything going on. You'd presumably interview people and then turn that into, into the book. It must have been amazing to dig into those memories because by the sounds of things from your age, that must have been a key period for you as well. Yeah, I mean, that period was really, really exciting. And to see Simon become the star that he, he was always from the day I met him was, was just brilliant. I mean, I just loved every second of their success. Mm. And so a lot of my experience of that decade comes from being in and around what they were up to, I guess, to a degree. I mean, I lived with Simon all through the 90s. For a few years, I lived with Steve and Simon. And then Steve lived above us in a flat in Moseley. In fact, that's the first time I met Paul because Steve said, Paul's coming around for tea. (laughs) <laughs> really? I mean, like, really make it sound like know. a date <laughs> i mean we were all on the dole steve wasn't at that point because he started playing with paul so he was bringing back money which he felt really guilty about and it was you very wonderfully get you would give simon a wad of cash which you know when you can't afford you know you can't in the pennies to the pint to get a wad of cash was was pretty amazing but he said Paul's coming around <laughs> so he did he came around to the upstairs flat which is like this really scuzzy horrible place you know Simon's window had a broken window in there for two years he never fixed it and he, his room was scattered with clothes and he never unpacked his bag or packed it it just was a mess and his Gibson was lying around he had this brilliant Gibson and it, Simon doesn't care about possessions in fact only one thing he cared about was Neil Young Decade he had the triple vinyl album and he, and he wouldn't put it with all the records in the living room. He kept it in his drawer underneath his socks. <laughs> the only thing he cared about is quite strange. But, uh, but yeah, Paul came round. Didn't Steve put a record on it? Isn't it P.P. Arnold? Wasn't it a track from Cafunta? Eleanor Rigby came on. And I was very quiet. I was always really shy. And I thought, I need to say something. And I went, oh, it's really good, this, isn't it? Paul went, well, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. I was only kind of saying that. I realised at that point, you know, stop trying to impress him, you know, it's just say what you really think. It yeah. wasn't, a, it's not a great version. 
I mean, she wrote some brilliant songs. Anyway, I'm detaching from the 90s, sorry. But, yeah, the 90s was really, really exciting. But I, I, but it's always exciting because you anything is when you're in your 20s. Mm. You know, in your teens, in your 20s. And I was in a band anyway, Rachel's Basement, and exciting things were happening for us. But um, and, but the idea of Cool Britannia, I, I don't think it had ever been properly defined. And it often gets used as a byword for Britpop. And they're very separate things in as much as Britpop is about music. Cool Britannia was a, a phrase used by American magazine journalists in in New York who saw something that was happening in this country by the mid-90s that brought together all different facets of culture, be it literature, film, art, football, music, politics even. And, And in all of those areas, something quite incredible and dramatic was happening that hadn't happened in at least a couple of generations. And you could arguably compare it to the small idea of what Swinging London was. was. And that's exactly what they did. And they said, this is called Britannia. But I don't think I probably had ever heard of that phrase. And I don't think any of my mates had in Birmingham. It just wasn't something that really crossed your mind until late 96, 97, when, when Vanity Fair and the magazine started using it. So, so yeah, I mean, to the book, it was, I decided that the way to tell the story was to meet as many people as possible that were responsible for the creation of those areas and to tell their story and look at it, and look at it from within. And yeah, many people disowned and hated the title Cool Britannia. Um, Jarvis Cocker refused to be in the book at first when, because I said it was going to be cool. Cool Britannia. And he said, oh, it's such a horrible name. I'm not doing it unless you change the name. He didn't mean it in a kind of a starry way, but he just didn't want to be aligned with something that was so hideous in as much as a, a, a labelled media concept. It wasn't that. And, and that was the point of the book, really, to say there were all these people ploughing their own furrows independently of, of one another. And then those people started to mix. So like Jarvis would mix with Damien Hurst and Damien Hurst would mix with Blur and Blur would mix with football and football would mix with politics. And the high point of that, I guess, or the, the thing that typifies it most in, in many ways is Three Lions, which is a song written by Ian Brody, lyrics by two comedians, Frank Skinner and David Padil. Uh, it's a pop song, but it's about football and it's, done by comedians and it's a kind of a, a gathering of storms and all of this was you know uh, importantly happening under a conservative government you know so therefore it was important to meet Virginia Bottomley who was heritage uh, minister at the time and John Major who was who was and when I told uh, John Major uh, he was shocked to re-remember that Cool Britannia happened under the Conservatives. Likewise, when I met Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair and told them to, uh, independently, the same thing, they were shocked to realise they weren't responsible for it. Yeah, because you're right. It, it, there is a link where it's the claim is it's, it's a new Labour. And that's a big section of the book, obviously, as well, is, is Blair 95 leading the, the Labour Party 97 election. But actually, I suppose it's half of the book, if you think about it, running to 2001, 2002. But... It feels like that's, that, that phrase has been hijacked by, by new labourers as them being responsible for, for everything around Cool Britannia and what that meant being driven forward by them, whereas actually it, it wasn't that case at all. I and mean, part of it, obviously, as it, as it came through and, and that energy and things was um, reflected in that. But it's a very different thing, isn't it? I mean, Alistair Campbell says, who just 
He doesn't think that Tony ever said the phrase Call Britannia. I mean, just to quote from Virginia Bottomley, she issued six uh, papers at the time uh, directly about Call Britannia and spoke about them in the House in that leader late 96 into 97. You know, if, you, if, if people want to look at Noel going to number 10, to meet Tony Blair as the apogee of Cool Britannia. The photograph, yes, but the the use of what was happening and how the media were talking about it was certainly the Conservatives. I mean, John Major, the famous speech at the uh, Mayor's Banqueting Centre, where he quoted about Newsweek and London being the coolest city on the planet and such things. And, and equally, you know, that meeting at number 10 was a meeting of Maureen Lippmann and Nick Hornby and Lenny Henry, and it was a celebration of culture. And it just so happened that the photograph captured Tony and Noel together. And as Tony Blair says in the book, he wasn't even sure that Noel was coming. When they met, suddenly you just felt a parting and the cameraman jumped on it. It, it wasn't, you know, many things may have been um, manipulated or used but actually I don't think that one particularly was and then Noel brilliantly says as he steps out of Downing Street to Alan McGee they're gonna kill us for this <laughs> there's a quote in there from Noel as well talking about wasn't Weller furious about that picture just because of what he was wearing I think was that right yeah well Noel says something like Paul thinks that a pair of shoes can change the world <laughs> he says yeah. it's just a pair of shoes to me <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> and the furious of the fact I think Noel doesn't own a suit or something like that. I think it's lovely. Um, so TFI Friday was a key part of this. Chris Evans was a key part of this too. In yeah, both, yeah, huge in terms of everybody had known it to that point. Top of the Pops was the show you wanted to be on, whether it was the Jam, the Star Council, etc. But actually TFI comes along and Chris Evans and his production team are quoted quite a lot. Will, like Will McDonald and Susie um, Ablin and stuff. Talking about the power of that show, both from, a, and I think it really connects with Weller because he was on the show once and actually oh, was... Really? What yeah, did he do? He did, um, it was Mermaids. He was squeezed right into the end to the point that I don't even think he got to finish the whole song. <laughs> it was the last one on. It must have been what, Heavy Soul album, I'm guessing. I was going to say it's Heavy Soul, isn't it? Yeah. It's- so, what's that 97 yeah and um, but yeah he was the last one on and from what I can remember didn't get to finish like the screen time didn't get to finish that song like the best song off Heavy Souls Peacock Soup oh yeah I asked asked Paul about that when I wrote Isle of Noises and he was brilliant he said something you know about the Narcissus in a puddle and, and he said it was the combination of Greek mythology and classic ideas put onto a high street wow that's That's so poor isn't it that's nice isn't it taking a a clever idea it shows that i mean paul's read hasn't he and he he, he goes and looks at art and he understands art you know or enjoys art gets gets inspiration from it maybe in the same way as somebody like martin scorsese does but he can always filter his ideas into an accessible street way Oh God, I love that song. Um, I'll talk about Isle of Noises in a sec because this is an earlier book from you, which was Conversations with Great British Songwriters. And whilst we're on the topic, actually, let's let's cover this quickly. So you talk about songs with him, and but many people. I mean, there's um, Ray Davies, Noel Gallagher, uh, Madness, John Lydon, Chris Difford, and Glenn Tilbrook, and from Squeeze. And but he talks about this idea of being in love with trying to condense a grand idea into a three and a half minute pop song, which I thought was really interesting. And that still seems to me to be something he's really passionate about. Even the new stuff, Fat Pop, there was. 
a the, the new song that came out the other day it was like two and a half minutes bang done in out done is that something you talk to him about at length to get to cut down for the book well absolutely because I mean I think he, he talked about the idea that good vibrations was within three minutes and and you know that that whole orchestral the orchestration of, of, of Brian um, Brian Beach Boy is just incredible to, to place within one song and he said he that he he used that as a amongst many songs as as a you know it's a piece of art and he's his his idea was to or it has has been to try and master that piece of art I mean I was listening to uh, my boy Lollipop the other day and I realised. It's under two minutes. I thought only too much too young. I mean, that's something we used to laugh at because too much too young is two minutes three. And it's only three because he says too much too young at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, my boy Lollipop, it's under two minutes. And that song changed the world. I mean, Mm. it introduced Scar to British audiences and open the floodgates of Jamaican music coming into that country. Can you imagine that something that lasts two minutes can change that the world? Impact. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And Paul's um, part of that lineage for sure. And, and, and yeah, in Island Noises, it, it, it follows the lineage from the, through each of the decades and key songwriters through the period. And Paul represents coming in in the, in the late seventies. He was a real master of that. I mean, the, the run of Jamson singles are quite extraordinary for their attempt to master the idea of the pop single. And, and, and you only have to think of Strange Town, A Bomb in Wardle Street, Beat Surrender. And, and as you roll off the, the names, to my mind, it conjures as a listener the theme of the song, an encapsulated idea. Uh, that that's quite a thing because you can reel off other people's songs. You, you'd be going, "Well, what? I ain't got a clue what that song's about." Mm. I might have to go back and have a read. But Strange Town, you know, you just know it, don't you? You know it immediately. The other quote that was in there that, that I think links back to what you were saying about now. You know, he's so well read. He's, I mean, he's clearly a smart guy. But there was this quote from him. He said it was writing songs like Saturday's Kids and that's entertainment. It was easy for me because that's just Bingo, who I was. Accents. <laughs> It's like, it was easy for me because that's just who I was. I was a very simple person. There isn't any great intellect behind it. And you're like, really? There must be. I mean, that just seems amazing to me that you can kind of, I mean, like an incredible poet to be able to write these things. But well, actually- he's got an instinctive intelligence. It's also a thing to underplay intelligence. You know, students, you know, what, 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 you know play down, play down intelligence, play down good schooling. You know, don't, don't. That's not a mark of things that to hang your coat up on. It doesn't matter if he's well read or not well read. It's just the ability to be able to put your thoughts and ideas into a song, and he can do that. And of course, that became a, a greater thing. I think in the early eighties, when he when he linked up with Anna Joy David, who is at that point uh, leading Youth CND, and Anna Joy, when I spoke to her or have spoken to her, would, would tell me that she fed quite a lot of books to Paul and, and uh, going back to things like The Ragged Trousers Philanthropists, which is not an easy book to read, but it, it, in terms of developing ideas about compassion for your fellow man and for society and for, you know, the great thing about that book is the idea of the, the money trick and how if you work for the bosses, how the, the circle of money benefits the bosses, but it doesn't benefit you as the worker and for right. your for your extended family. Interesting. So you mentioned about Paul 
this link through the decades. Matthew Wright um, says that there's no Britpop without British identity. Paul Weller would be the link between the decades. And it's been really fascinating to read this through. You mentioned Island Noises, uh, your other book, Walls Come Tumbling Down, which we'll touch on in a sec too, of this journey from Paul from, from the early 80s, right through from working Red Wedge and the Style Council, those incredible songs too, which we'll touch on in a sec, right through to that solo period from 91, right through, I mean, where are we now? 30 years of solo period. But in, in Don't Look Back in Anger, where you're talking about majority of it that being the 90s, it really was that link from then to now. And this whole mod father thing came about as well. But he, he joined it all up, didn't he, from Oasis and Blur and Ocean Colour Scene? Yeah, yeah, kind of. It's a strange one, really, because there's a definite, there's a definite divide in, in music in the 90s. There's two divides. There's the divide of, are you into, the, are you into 60s music? And, and, from a, and the journalist going, yeah, but which 60s music? And if it's if it's kind of who Beatles, maybe Stones and it's small faces, it's old and not cool. If it's Pink Floyd and a bit and and some like Blur were doing, or then then it is cool. And then and then alongside that was the influence of post punk bands like the Jam and Clash, Stranglers, uh Adam and the Ants, Dirt Wears White Sox, period. Bands like Elastica, Blur Again, Supergrass, Supergrass heavily influenced by the jam. You hear loads of their Supergrass riffs coming from all mod cons kind of period jam. That was all, again, as far as the press, the, the music journalists, that, that was all cool. And so the divide happened in those kind of ways. And, and, and that, that became what Britpop was in a way. But bands outside of Britpop, Oasis aren't Britpop, Paul Weller wasn't Britpop, and Ocean, Ocean Colour Scene weren't Britpop in that kind of way of thinking. But as time goes on, it becomes an easy and loose definition. And so they, they get lumped into it, except what well, Ocean Colour Scene don't, because they don't get lumped into anything because everybody hates them, you know, of, of critical, <laughs> of crit, critical yeah. importance. They're ignored yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. dismissed, uh, which is utter nonsense. But Paul, yeah, is strangely between those two cultures. And he has, you know, this incredible run of records in that period. You know, I remember seeing Paul, that what you were talking about when, when OCS supported, I saw Paul first time in Portsmouth and it felt like a three quarter full dance hall, which is kind of odd really uh, on that first album. You know, with great tracks on it, Into Tomorrow. Wow. Oh, yeah. Paul Rush. Going into Magic Bus, you know, lots of good songs, but still got that ethereal English sound, the flutes, not quite sure who the backing band should be, how it should work. And then it really changes, doesn't it, with Wildwood uh, and obviously Stanley Road and those two records. Paul's performing. I saw him so many times in that period, tens of times perhaps, and his passion on stage was just incredible. You know, the intensity of his performance, the intensity to the song, to the moment, to making the, the sound work was just brilliant. And then to have Steve jumping around on the side of him, doing his twirls and kicks and turns and leaps and all that, when he was good at all that. Well, not good at what I'm talking about, good at all that. When he was had the energy it. to do that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so exciting. You know, we always said to Steve, when you go on stage, just... Just do, just go, da, 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 da. and I bet you all the crowd will go, this is a model book. <laughs> We're always trying to make him do it. <laughs> Brilliant. And I remember Steve saying, he went, I said, what's it, you know, because you, you would, wouldn't you? What, what's, it, what's it like? And he said, I went back to Sunday lunch with Paul. And he said, I've been playing with him for a few months. But he said there was a moment, so I remember him saying, he was at Sunday lunch and he, 
he suddenly said, like, which passed the salt or something, or maybe he did, to, and Paul passed it. And he just suddenly went, oh, oh, God, it's Paul Weller. <laughs> and he just had, like, a little moment. But, no, Steve was very cool in that period, handled it very cool. I remember reading that Steve Craddock used to turn up at the Jam studio, I think, and, and Kenny Wheeler, like, chucking him out all the time. <laughs> well, the thing is that we were all in bands in the 80s, mid-80s. Damon was in a band called Transaction. I was in a band with Simon called uh, Grape Trail. And Steve was in a band called Deadline. And then they became the boys. And the boys were a complete copy of the jam. Or the, albeit that they wore white. Sometimes they wore suits. And then they all went into white. Steve played a Rickenbacker bass. And Steve sounded like Paul. And the songs and Steve would be doing jumps, you know, with it, you know, to the side. And, and it was a joke. I mean, uh, Damon didn't want... Steve in the band uh, at the beginning because he thought he was a jam joke, <laughs> a jam joke, <laughs> you know. And but that, that was Steve. But the but the brilliant thing is, you know, he had that thing to go down to London, stand outside Solid Bomb, give him a, a demo tape, and I think he went back down. And Paul said to him, "The next time, well, you just sound like us." In a way to say, "Stop mucking about," you know. If you're going to do this, find your own way. And to all Steve's credit, he did. The, the important change between what you referred to earlier as the, the first Ocean Colour Scene album, which is, that's Ocean Colour Scene, not the standout album, but that, that album has been pushed by Simon, because Simon's influences were Neil Young and the Buzzcocks and, and the Stones, and, and was pushing the influence, because Simon was quite an imposing figure in that kind of way, you, you went where he went. But Steve came into his own in that 92-93 period at Bob Lamb's studio in Birmingham, where... They, they were there every day doing amazing things, but nobody wanted to know. And there was, and it almost felt like um, a snap, you know, something changed that Steve rediscovered the, the sensibility of mod. And with that, he'd neglected his electric guitar, really. Mm. They were doing all these tracks like The Whitest Wife in the World and God's, God's World and, and, and they're doing Mama Cass covers. Oh, and also the odd things like La 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 Lies and, the Who, they were doing songs, but it was guitar light. And it was quite strange um, to think of them without heavy guitar. And then Steve suddenly re-embraced the guitar and they started doing things like Get Blown Away. And it was like, wow, something's kicking off here. There's a really important club in Birmingham called Sweat. A guy called Des ran it in the back of the... Um when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Institute, and it was every couple of weeks, I think, playing acid jazz, newer stuff like Cordroy, but really old stuff going back to James Brown and Northern Soul tracks. And it was a so, so cool club. And 
that became hugely influential. And Ocean Colour Scene played it in about 94, 95, before they were well known. And Paul came down to that. Again, it was one of those moments, like the anointed air <laughs> of all this has come to, you know, and everybody's flocking around him. I can't remember if he played or not, actually. I don't think he did. Oh, amazing. God, honestly. I mean, the book's brilliant, I have to say, from the journey all the way through right to understanding. I mean, you were kind of kicking off Mandela being released, Nirvana, Big Breakfast. I mentioned Evans earlier. Um, Blair, Euro 96. All these memories kind of came flooding back when I was, when I was reading. It was lovely. And um, uh, there's a lot of bits about Weller in there, uh, which is which is lovely. And the idea that Liam Gallagher's talking about Noel Gallagher being the Weller fellow was something I really liked as well. <laughs> that became a catchphrase when we heard. That. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really cool. But there's so much in there, so much packed in there. It, it's, it's brilliant, honestly. Man. I have to say, it's a, re- a real, real joy to read. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to touch on was Walls Come Tumbling Down, which was the book. And, and I guess, in a way, Don't Look Back in Anger is a sequel to yes. that book. Yeah. Um, so Walls Come Tumbling Down, not only is the title taken from a Style Council song, which we'll talk about in a sec too, but this is the music and politics of Rock Against Racism, Two Tone, and Red Wedge. And Paul was such a massive part of Red Wedge. I mean, essentially it was him, Billy Bragg, Anna Joy David, the three of them driving that forward. And it would be great to hear about from the research that you did, how much of that you were talking to people about Paul's influence on that particularly, on, on that Red Wedge. And talking to some people on the podcast, there's a few where now people think that wasn't, you know, it wasn't a success in the sense that Labour at the time didn't get in. I think when reading the follow-up book from you, you can kind of see well, that, that, all, that laid to me, that laid, that laid the groundwork for what came next with Blair. Without Red Wedge, you wouldn't have got to that point, I don't think, personally. But it'd be lovely to hear what your thoughts were. Yeah, I mean, Red Wedge became very much a simple soundbite and a dismissive one at that. And I was always aware of that, having been at the Red, the Red Wedge gig in Birmingham in January 1986. Uh, and all the way through until I decided to write the book, I'd never heard a, a fair or even... Exa- I hadn't read an examination of Red Wedge to understand what it was, you know, because people said that Margaret Thatcher won the 1987 election against Red Wedge, you know, that Billy Bragg and Paul Weller lost the election. I mean, it's just absurd. That that's wasn't, that wasn't the point. And very, very simply, the point of Red Wedge was just to encourage voter election, regist- voter registration, sorry. That was the, that was the aim. Simple as that. And then within that, to kind of put a different version of life to people, which which was exemplified by Red Wedge Day events, which were extraordinary, which Paul was a major part of, where they Anna Joy David would spend months before any Red Wedge gig going to youth centres um, and small towns and finding uh, disenfranchised youth, people outside that weren't uh, fortunate enough to go to sixth form college or, or uh, were struggling in work and felt their voices weren't being heard. She found these people and brought them to day events where they would meet a local politician, often a, a leading national politician, and a, and a selection of pop stars of the day, be it some were Paul, sometimes it would be Paul and Billy and the Communards and or people from Madness or Rhoda Dacca, and there would be a conversation and a, a debate. That in itself is wow. extraordinary. That's, Paul was yeah. a number one artist. Can you imagine Adele going with Skepta and uh, Alex Turner, and uh, you go down at three o'clock into the village hall and you have a debate and you talk about the political situation and how things could change if you registered to vote and thought about different ideas. Just that that's madness, you know, and they did it. And, uh, and that's incredible. Just that in itself. Then you go to a gig on the nighttime 
Forget the politics, just enjoy some music. Well, yeah, and the lineups. I mean, you mentioned some of them, but Madness, the, the Heaven 17, Banana Rama. You have to be careful of this because these kind of lists run away with themselves when they're not always true. Banana Rama signed up for it, but never did a gig. The other did one in the later years. Elvis Costello would never do Red Wedge, but was kind of, he came in at Newcastle on the day of the tube when they performed on the tube and saved an event at Newcastle Uni from, there was going to be some mass riot because somebody had leaked that Paul was playing and he wasn't playing, but he made it into the NME. And so all these people came down to the event. And then when they discovered it, it wasn't a style council gig, but all kinds of things went on and they managed to get Elf Costello, who was coincidentally performing on the tube that day. And he, he offered to come in and step in and okay. did a 40 minute set, which is quite incredible. I mean, also Paul, I was interested in, in finding out how much Paul really did dismiss the idea of Red Wedge or what I suspected and was the case was if you're involved with something for two to three, four years, there's a depth there that is worth unpicking and revealing. And that story of Paul, you know, goes back to hearing Anna Joy David on LBC radio talking to a quarter of a million people in Hyde Park and being impressed by her. And then them two forming an alliance, which led through CND, Green and Common issues, ran parallel to Billy Bragg doing jobs for youth tour, led to the formation of Red Wedge, Red Wedge tours. And then after the election, Paul stays on and meetings are still held at Solid Bond. And he's still a a director, I think, of Red Wedge at that point. And Red Wedge goes on until early 90s. And And what I felt was hugely important was to speak to Neil Kinnock, which I did, and to discover what he felt was effective. Now, Here, what's important to remember is that never in the history of rock and roll have musicians tried to change society from the inside, i.e. rather than being like rock against racism or punk or whoever, anarchists in the late 50s, early 60s and be anti-establishment and anti-society, Red Wedge took the opportunity that there was an open door into Parliament and something could change on the statute book. That's the way to change society, to get the rules changed. And so they took advantage of that and Neil Kinnock embraced them. Then the question is, well, what did he embrace and did anything change? And the brilliant thing here is that Pete Jenner, who was Billy Bragg's manager, Anna Joy, who have mentioned, and Neil Spencer, who had been the uh, editor of NME, they drew up policies and ideas of what Red Wedge stood for. They produced a kind of a a catalogue and it's very, very well written. It's not written in pop talk. It's written in housing needs, in job needs, in women's needs, in gay rights needs. And it's a hardcore read that is decisive and to the point. And Neil Kinnock said that when the wholesale undressing of Labour took place in the late 80s, early 90s, leading up to what they hoped would be the, a 92 election victory. The ideas that were fed into Red Wedge were fed in to Labour Party policy and within the manifesto. He said that was a vindication of Red Wedge. Now, obviously, they don't win. And you can hear people think, maybe listeners going, well, there you go, nothing happened. But the important thing is then Kinnock explained that when Blair came in, in 97, there was no re-examination or analysis of the Labour Party's manifesto or mandate for government. So they took what existed already, therefore Neil's ideas and the Red Wedge ideas. So so just immediately comes to mind, the the green ideas that that Red Wedge promoted, free museums 
was a red wedge idea. There were areas like this, and so it did filter its way. If you change a law, you change society. Therefore, you're changing the world. Therefore, music is changing the world. You know, I have this argument with Billy Bragg all the time. Billy says music can't change the world. I completely and utterly disagree. It does. It, it, it changes how people think. It changes their actions. And that comes from the song that you've heard. And whether that was Walls Come Tumbling Down that didactically told you how to think in a more um, compassionate way or it was uh, uh, Between the Wars, you know, the didactic songs get inside your mind and make you act in a different way. That's music changing the world. Yeah, well, it's remarkable. I think, like you say, and, and Paul's influence and the connection, like I say, between the two books of that story from Red Wedge to then be actually, you're right. The end result is New Labour and the, and the good that came of that. And I think the the downside of the Iraq War and, and that decision from Blair has clouded everything and that legacy of the of the good stuff that came from New Labour has been. Well, Prime Minister hasn't been to war. Everybody, yeah. that's, that's just men, isn't it? <laughs> really. Well, that should yeah, as well, though, to be fair. Well, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But it's generally men that go to war, isn't it? You know, yeah. we go to war in the playground when we're six. You know, <laughs> women, all the girls don't get around and have a big fight to decide who's top dog, do they? You know, it's men, it's boys to do it. It's other lessons to do it at doing it all through the 80s and, and having fights at gigs and it's just men being ridiculous and it carries on and that's what and it's just a form of fighting that's all that kind of politics ultimately is isn't it it's showboating and fighting paul saw that that's the great thing and that's where i think he becomes most dismissive about red wedge is because he saw the egos of mps and felt that they were greater than the egos of Pop stars, that's going some, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, God. Well, yeah, and also I think, like you say, like some some of the politicians maybe looking at it for the wrong reasons and not, not doing it because they want to change things and influence things, but doing it, you know, attaching themselves to Weller because he's a pop star and being in the photo shoots because you know because that looks cool and things like but that. But it's that. But the point, politics at the heart is about power. If you haven't got power, then what's the point of being a politician? Or how do you get power? You have to use the situation, and then when you're in power, you have to keep it. Because somebody's uh, after your area of power. It's all about power games. Obviously, it is. And and but within those power games, the the, the land has to be run. The people have to be governed. Laws have to be made. That's a toxic mix immediately. Obviously, the title of the book's taken from Walls Come Tumbling Down, taken from the Style Council. But were you a big Style Council fan or was it no. more? No, not at all. Um, I don't really like the Style Council. No, I mean, there were some pop songs that I liked by the Style Council. But they're, they're they're far and few between. Um, but when they were good, they were brilliant. Shouts the top internationalists. Walls come tumbling down. Yeah. You know, solid bond in your heart. There are some really great songs. But my my greater problem is not with Paul's songwriting, or as you say, his, his most didactic period of lyric writing in his life. It's the production, and I'm not a fan of eighties production. And um, and that's what mars those records for me, really. And and I didn't like the look of the band, really. I didn't like some of the videos. Everything about it. I, I wanted. The, I was still. I wanted aggression. To me, what Billy Bragg was doing with one the one man clash was powerful and and said it. You know, to have and to have not by Billy Bragg and walls come tumbling down are from the same bag of aggression. But more, more Billy records stay in that vein. Mm than what Star Council records do. So I always struggled with the Star Council. Plus the fact people around our way used to wear, you know, wear jumpers 
ran over their shoulders and tie it in the middle and, you know, wear white trousers and then, you know, no socks and they just look rubbish. <laughs> you know, I was a rude boy. A rude boy, that doesn't marry with no, a rude That boy doesn't work. <laughs> and it kind of looked a bit like the 80s and then Paul had a full opie haircut, didn't he? And yeah, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't into it and it's going to just annoy, it's going to annoy people, isn't it? But the jam were better. <laughs> Simply, they're just better. You know, ultimately... If your house is burning down or you're going to a, a desert island, you know, you grab your jam records, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the solo years in terms of those early records, Sandy Road, Wildwood and that. How have you yeah. felt about the career since? So have you kind of, because this is a long period of time, there's a lot of albums in that to dissect, which we won't have time to, but are there highlights from that after post-90s, post maybe the next book um, that, that stand out for you in terms of Paul's work? I'm just going to get hate mail now because... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I admire Paul is making records and pushing himself as a songwriter in ways he hasn't worked before. And that's all an artist can do. But Paul's voice has changed. I think he uses quite a lot of um, tropes now that voice-wise across a lot of his records and they're more mature and older and they're probably taking in influences that I don't know or understand. And they work for him and they work for a large portion of his fans and particularly they critically work. I mean, he's had this extraordinary run of number one albums. But, you know, Fast Cars and From the Floorboards Up, I I tend to gravitate to tracks like that. And again, it sounds like the jam in a way, doesn't it? It's not, I'm not saying that I want the jam because that's just absurd and it's ridiculous. But I haven't followed, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not of the line that if you're into somebody when they're young, follow them and like it. And just because they're exploring a different musical avenue or cul-de-sac, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, I come and go more now with Paul Records and live, likewise, sometimes. I mean, I went to a gig not how long ago would it have been? Four or five years ago, and Paul played, and he did shout to the top, and I thought, oh, I t- heard it from the opening bars. I thought when the, re- the audience are going to go ballistic, and they didn't, and I was, I thought that was strange. Why would you not go mad to shout to the top? And then he came out once and did an acoustic gig supporting Ocean Colors in early a few years. Oh, it's brilliant because he was wearing monkey boots, Levi jeans turned up, and a blue Harrington. And I, I think I was with Simon. I said, "Look, Paul, he looks like a jam fan." <laughs> <laughs> and he came out and did, he did about four or five acoustic songs, and they just kind of received like a support act would be received. It's a strange. I can't quite understand. But then the the thing that I don't want to balance an admiration against kind of being slightly dismissive of some of the records, just from a personal point of view, being dismissive is that when I saw him do Sonic Kicks at the Roundhouse. He came out and played the whole of Sonic Kicks. Start yeah, I, was, to I was there. Yeah, I, I was think, there first night. I was there. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, I think it had only come out that day, so nobody yeah. knew it. Then he went out. Then he went off for an interval. Then he came back out. And I thought, well, you know, some people have done this in the past. Lou Reed did it with New York and came out and then did Velvet songs in the second half. So I'm thinking, well, Paul's going to come out and do Eaton Rifles. And, but of course he didn't. He did all kind of like stranger songs like Por- Porcelain Gods and lesser known album tracks for the whole of the second half, as I remember. But mm. what I thought was amazing was it was the, the point at when lots of bands were reforming to do their album, like Echo and the Bunnymon or Ocean Colour Scene. We'll go and play our album. And uh, and Paul thought, well, I'm going to do my album, my new one. 
wow, that's a lot of nerve and says a lot about him. So I have immense respect for what he does, but he doesn't carry me with every record, no. That's the great thing about this podcast as well is that there are so many people listening who have said, actually, do you know what? The, the, the thing for them was the jam and to them, music in a way stopped existing post-1982. And that's cool. That's fine as well. And there'll be a, hopefully enough on this podcast to entertain people and interest people on that as well. There are some people like myself who discovered him so low years and actually have dug into the back catalogue and love an awful lot of it. But then other people have just, just liked the solo stuff and none of the style cuts and other jam. And that's cool as well. You know, there's no, you don't have to be there from day one to, to 20, you know, from 1977 to 2021 and love everything all the way through. What I do love all the way through is his clothes. He's <laughs> <laughs> such a great dress, isn't he? I wish I had money and I could go and buy some clothes. It'd be yeah. really nice and, yeah, I'd be definitely checking out what he was wearing. I bet when he came to your crappy flat, he looked the part, right? I think he would probably have Levi's on that were ripped a bit at the bottom, but above the desert boots. And he didn't wear Clark's desert boots. He wore, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, oh, it's gone from my mind. But yeah, he had a different, slightly, uh, the desert boot. Um, More expensive desert boot, I'm imagining. No, 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 they're not. They're cheap. Oh, right. They were kind of the same price or a little bit cheaper than um, than Clark's. I mean, Clark's have gone ridiculous, haven't they? About 80, 90 quid now. It's madness. It's a long, thought- it's a long journey from Ken Barlow wearing them, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> What's come tumbling down? Did you ever get Paul's opinion on it? Did you ever find out what he thought about the writing of Red Wedge? And, yes. And- oh, God, yeah. I mean, before I started the book, I, I asked Paul if I could use the title, which uh, just out of courtesy, mm. and he was he brilliantly said yes. And, um, and he said, just use anything I've ever said before. And he waved the charge for the use of the lyrics in the book, and he made sure that the uh, publishers didn't charge me either. That was brilliant because I know a song is owned part by the songwriter, part by the publishers. The publishers don't care what the songwriter thinks, really. Yeah, they yeah. want to make their, their money. And that, Paul, you know, that was way, that was an amazing thing to do. And I was really worried. And I've, um, I said this recently in that new part, Star Cancer book that um, has just been published. So deep, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Paul, I was at an Ocean Colour Sing gig on the side of the stage. And Paul was there and I said to him, you know, I, I wrote Walls Come Tumbling Down and Daniel, you know, uh, did I do all right by you? And he just kind of, you know, nodded. And I thought, mm, mm. <laughs> and I, th- uh, I thought, oh dear. <laughs> and we were watching the gig and he was stalking his girlfriend behind the flat. So I thought that'd be funny if they'd blow and everybody in the crowd. But then he came over to me later and squeezed my uh, shoulder and just said, you did all right by me. And I was oh, like, nice. oh, I melted, to be honest. <laughs> You know, it's like, because it, yeah, I mean, he, it was so, so important, his, yeah, to be vindicated by him for what I've done, because the importance of that book, really, as like Billy said to me, when I said, I want, I, I asked Billy's permission again, I said, I want, I'd like to do the story of Red Wedge, would you be okay with that? And he said, yeah, but you have to tell the story of Rock Against Racism, because otherwise it won't make sense. And in fact, I think probably a, a solid third, if not more, is the story of Rock Against Racism. And that's absolutely incredible. And, you know, talking to over 100 people, and, and, and in particular people like Linton Crazy Johnson and members of Steel Pulse and Aswad and Misty and Roots, Dennis Bavell. And I really wanted to get the black experience of Britain in the 70s, the black experience of early 80s Britain from their point of view. And that was very, very different. Their experience of what it's like to be at school and be on the end of white kids going, you all white? 
you all white, mate, oh, really? and then yeah, big beaten yeah. up. And, and when you don't come home from school on time, the first place your mates go or your parents go is the cop shop because they just assume you've been arrested. Paul played a, under a rock against racism banner right at the end. I feel very passionate about what that story tells because it's the story of, of British black Britain and it's the story of uh, British whites trying to make a better human condition for all to exist in. And of course, where that really explodes is in Jerry Dammers. And first with the uh, the whole concept of Two-Tone and the multicultural band, the specials. And then, you know, that idea that Nelson Mandela stands on stage in 1990, a free man after 27 years of incarceration and the band and the, everybody has just come on stage and sang the song Free Nelson Mandela written yeah. by Jerry Dammers. And in that leap, 16 years, if you go back to when Clapton made those outrageous comments at the Birmingham Odeon, you know, telling the, the, the black people in the audience to go back to their own country, the leap of a youth generation being told by 1990, it's cool to be anti-racist. That's the coolest thing you could possibly ever be. That was incredible. And to tell that story in Wars Come Tumbling Down, I was hugely proud. And Paul's song is, is at the heart of that. Yeah, no, it's remarkable, I have to say. This has been so lovely, Daniel. A couple of things to, to touch on um, before we go. Um, one is what's coming next, because I think what's coming next is going to... Paul Weller will love what's coming next, I reckon. The idea of the next book is that what would have happened if the Beatles hadn't split up. Is that right? Like some forgotten dream. <laughs> John Lennon lyric from a Beatles song. I'll let your listeners work that one out, which yeah. one it is. Yeah. And it's Simon and I, when we were in our 20s or maybe before, always used to play this fantasy game with each other. And Simon used to call it uh, early 1970. And it was, what would the Beatles album have been in 1970? And we'd always be going, oh, have you heard this track? Have you heard that? Did you know Paul had written this? In 1968, did you know, uh, give me some truth, John and Paul played together in 1969 at um, Twickenham. Uh, and then did you know George wrote this for Ringo and, uh, and there's this an amazing verse. And, and so we used to play this game. And, and, and then I suddenly thought, that could be a book. I wonder. It was the purpose of the book is to look at all the missed opportunities and chances that could have uh, changed the fate of the Beatles splitting. There are a lot of them and a lot of just guys being guys in their 20s, not knowing how to speak. Yeah, communication, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, communication. And, and then there's the, the incredible meeting on 9th September 1969 at Apple where John says to George and Paul, okay, next album, four songs each. I have four Paul, you have four. George has four. Ringo can have two if he wants them. What do you think? And that's the pivot point where the book says, okay, imagine now that became a reality. And so I slightly stretch the idea and I imagine them, as they always were groundbreaking, doing a double album called Four Sides of the Beatles. And they... Because of the circumstance of what the disagreements are, and, and George really frustrated that he's not getting room and not being treated how he wants to be treated, they each get a side of an album. The book examines these songs, the, the six songs that each of them would have done had they had a side each, four sides of the Beatles, as the record that followed 
Abbey Road. Of course, Let It Be follows Abbey Road, but not sequentially in the recording process. Yeah. So that's another big question. And these are things I have to answer. What happens to Let It Be if there's another Beatles album? And, and there's a strict criteria. So you, you can have Maybe I'm Amazed because it's written while he's still a Beatle. But you can't have Live and Let Die because it's outside the time frame. You can have Mind Games because it was written, started being written in 69. There's all these things like this, and uh, Ringo gets some great songs. This sounds incredible. When is this out, Daniel? Uh, end of August. Comes oh. out just after Oasis of Medworth, which I've had the absolute privilege of writing uh, next to Jill Fermanovsky's photographs of the great weekend in 96. Wow, this is incredible. I have to say, you're a very productive chap. This is great. Hey, look, I've got two final questions for you, right? You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. Which one is it? It can be the Jam, the Style Council, or Solo. Uh, Man in the Corner Shop. Oh, why that one? I just love the idea of the, the chain of events of the one person's looking up to the other person, is looking up to the other person, is looking up to the other person. So lyrically, it's brilliant. And melodically, it's beautiful. And you know, that's enough, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that will do. That's, yeah. all, that's all we need. Love it. Uh, final question. Purpose of this podcast, it's called Desperately Seeking Paul. So the purpose of this podcast, I mean, it's to talk to lovely people like yourself, obviously. But really, it's all about meeting Paul. It's being able to get the interview with Paul that I met, never managed to get in my radio career. I gave up life as a presenter 10 years ago with that one big regret. If I do get the interview, what should I talk to him about? Wow. Uh, it would be something to do with songwriting. Uh, something about the sound of a record, something in that vein. That's a really hard question. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not easy. I appreciate. It. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because because what you're asking me to do is what I ask myself to do with the noises, isn't it? It's ask. I mean, I used to have a dream as a kid. You know, like we all used to do when you when I was going through smash hits. So, you know, just imagine if you could sit down with your favourite pop star and talk about their songs for all afternoon. That was yeah. my little fantasy, you know. If it, 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 it could have been Adam Antwerp, it could have been Terry Hall or whoever, you know. But uh, And I ended up doing that. I sat with Paul for a, a good number of hours. He quizzed me about the kinks for asking <laughs> that. So ask him. He said to me, would you think of a kinks in uh, the 70s records? And I was thinking, oh, and, um, and, and I love things like uh, sitting in my hotel and sitting in the midday sun. And, and then I suddenly thought, he nicked that in Boy About Town. And I asked him about that. And so we kind of had it. So ask him about what the great kink songs from the, um, from, from the 70s after Supersonic Rocket Ship. Great stuff. I have to say that's brilliant. <laughs> Just to touch on Island Noises, um, was he open to talking about songwriting? Because everything I've read, read about recently, there's a bit where he's kind of going, I just don't know how I come up with it. It comes to me and I'm not <laughs> sure. And sometimes he seems a bit close on that topic and that he doesn't want to overanalyze lyrics and, and what they're about because they mean different things to different people. And then often he's not quite sure. But it seems like he was very open to talking about that kind of stuff with you. I originally asked... If I could have an hour and a half with Paul, <laughs> and the, and the Claire said, "You gotta be kidding! He's never talked for more than ten minutes on songwriting." <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I said, "He's got to! He's got to! Because otherwise, his chapter's going to look rubbish." But what was incredible was, of course, I was intimidated and a bit scared, and but um, he was so considerate, and he instead of shutting down my questions, he opened them up and took time to consider what 
I was asking, and I think I had a pretty good run. He didn't get bored until quite near the end, probably when I started asking what he thought about Santa Gold doing pretty green. <laughs> Why? You got enough, mate. See ya. <laughs> yeah, turn up. <laughs> Let's hope I can, I can have a similar experience. Uh, Daniel, this has been so lovely. I thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate oh. it. Thanks very much for having me. It's been good fun. My thanks once again to the brilliant Daniel Rachel. Do make sure you check out the books, Don't Look Back in Anger, Walls Come Tumbling Down, and Isle of Noises. You can find the links in the show notes for this podcast. Next up, the magnificent Neil Sheesby from Stone Foundation. We dig into his story of a love of the jam at school, to the Star Council, Weller Solo, and plenty of collaborations with the great man since. Don't forget to please click share on this episode and post it on social media. It's a busy old place, so the more you can help us to shout about this podcast, the more it helps us to find new listeners to the show. You can get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.